Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you dread anything? Is there anything in your life that you just truly, authentically dread? Mm, on a sort of permanent basis? Yeah, like in a day-in, day-out kind of a thing. Or even in a on a, on a, on a, on a very short-term scale. Like, mm. are you dreading our move from the 15th floor to the 11th floor? Here or? No, I celebrate it. Celebrate. A new beginning. Yeah? Yeah. That's a positive way to look at it. But yeah, I think you just, you know, we're going to release ourselves from the shackles of the past, whatever that means. No, for me, it's more... I don't, I don't dread that. It's more like a, I'll have these sort of clouds of existential dread every once in a while. Yeah. Meaning that it could be the most beautiful day with this clear blue sky. Everything could be going right. But somewhere in the world, I feel like, you know, there's this general unease about something not going well, possibly in the future. So for me, it's not usually a defined dread. Mm. What about you? Um, Dread. Well, yes. Uh, we, so we discussed in Paper Tigers. Uh, it's it's easy to begin to have these these fl- fight or flight fears about things that have have uh, have n- have no power to really harm us. Like when I was going through a lot of uh, a lot of paperwork for adoption, or uh, or every year with taxes, I get that sense of of dread. You know, like oh, I've got to I've got to do this paperwork, and it's going to be dreadful on some level, and I and I feel like it's a physical threat to me. Uh, but but of course it isn't. And if I stop to analyze it enough, I realize no, this is not necessarily life or death. Yeah, but I was thinking about this that we have been trained, at least here in the United States, um, in various ways to dread something awful happening to you. And it begins very, at a, you know, at a young age, we're taught to anticipate these various tragedies, whether or not it's a hurricane or a tornado or some other sort of natural disaster. Mm. Uh, and, you know, how about the whole, like, stop, drop, and roll? Um, yeah. All the sorts of alarms and emergency uh, routines that we go through. And that's good, because that helps to prepare hey, us. You need, you need to be prepared. And so we'll have very real-life examples of that, where if there's a fire, you stop, drop, and roll. And then we have, uh, you know, in our fairy tales, and the stories we tell each yeah. other, and the fictions... I mean, by the the very nature that you need the narrative to be engaging, you, you, it's fiction, it's storytelling. You need there to be a threat. You need something to happen that is bad, so that the characters can navigate through it, around it, or what have you. So people wander into the woods and they are abducted by witches, and witches try to cook them. Things of that na- nature happen <laughs> as a means to try and remind children, "Hey, don't go walking into candy houses just because they're made out of candy. You might wind up being eaten by a cannibal woman." Right, stranger danger, really, yeah. what we're talking about. So you do have to create this database of dangers in order to better survive, but then you have sort of this minutiae of minor threats or perceived threats or just stand-ins for threats that yes. aren't really dangerous, but they begin to take over in your imagination more real pressing threats. And that's where this idea of dread anxiety and mm-hmm. and in some ways just generalized anxiety disorders take over. Well, Stranger Danger is a great example of that because on, one, on, a, on a very basic level, yes, there's... There, Children need to be on guard. They need to stay around their parents. And there are individuals out there who will harm them. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, statistically, they exist. However, if you go overboard and you start thinking that every stranger is a danger, 
if you start, uh, e- even as a culture, begin to just go on like a, a nonstop witch hunt uh, of potential people who are uh, a danger to children, mm-hmm. then you get into an entirely weird and problematic area. Well, let me layer one more thing over that. Then you begin to read things like it shouldn't be a stranger that you're concerned about because the majority of abductions take place by people that you exactly. actually know. Yeah. And so you have to sort of reframe that conversation with your child. So what the point is, is that there's all there's all these sort of real and perceived threats that just pile up one on top of the other, where as humans, particularly in the day and age that we live in, when there's so much data in front of us, you have to sort through it and try to figure out what you truly should be anxious about. And sometimes the, you know, the wiring gets crossed. Yeah. Which brings us to something called general anxiety disorder or, or GAD or, or as I like to read it, God. And so, uh. General anxiety disorder is uh, severe ongoing anxiety that interferes with your day-to-day activities. Uh, and and uh, we're talking about symptoms such as panic disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, other types of anxiety that kind of get uh, sucked into the fold, and they're, they're varying uh, different levels of this condition. Yeah, and it generally involves thoughts of uncontrollability and unpredictability of upcoming personally salient events or shift in attention of our inability to cope, memory of negative aspects of certain events and Mm -hmm. negative emotion. And people with this disorder, they can't relax, uh, they startle easily, and they have difficulty concentrating. And a lot of times they have a, a hard time falling asleep and staying asleep. And the National Institute of Mental Health says that the physical symptoms that accompany this include, of course, fatigue, headaches, muscle tension, muscle aches, difficulty swallowing, trembling, twitching, irritability, sweating, nausea, lightheadedness, and having to go to the bathroom frequently, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Now, now, luckily, it's it's very treatable for the most part um, via medications and, and or therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's not... Uh, not necessarily a, a permanent life condition, but it's it's again it's it's like you say it's these these anxieties build up in our lives. Uh, I like to think of like a cave with stalactites and stalagmites forming, till eventually they're just all these sharpened cave to- teeth everywhere, and uh, and they can be cleared out. But you've got to sort of stop and have some sort of level of self awareness either come out of you or or have it imposed upon you to realize what's real and what's not. Well, and I think the reasons why they can, even if you brush them away, they continue to build back up is because at the very heart of this is this this knowledge that one day we will all die, right? This is, yep. uh, so, you know. Every last one of us. Every last one of us. So this is that sort of, I always think about it as this um, sort of double-edged blade of consciousness you know like it's great that you're conscious we we humans are conscious and we can enjoy so many different things at the same time we realize that you know our time um in our physical bodies is 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 going to come to a close right yeah and that you know there's a very good chance that the uh the last uh few chapters of that book uh might be a a little less happy than the uh, the, the middle ones. I and, mean, right, and everything beyond that is the great unknown. So it's yeah. sort of you know that's that's a lot yeah. for for a brain, a conscious brain to sort of I take mean, in. Even as you pick it apart, which I, I sometimes do, and I you know I remind myself, well, death. Everybody does it. Everybody who's ever everybody's lived has doing done it. it. Yeah, everybody's doing it. And look at some of the people who do it. It couldn't. There couldn't be that much to it, right? But so on one hand, you can sort of dismantle it like that. But then you remind yourself exactly what it entails. Not just a mere uh, cutting off of of life, but a uh, well, in some cases it's that. But uh, but in other cases, a decline of life, a decline of the quality of life that terminates uh, in this abyss. 
Well, I was thinking about probably one of the best films that deals with this topic, and for me, it's A Serious Man by ah, yes. the Coen Brothers. Great film. It is. It's probably a little bit bleaker than some of their films. Actually. Yeah, it's definitely. Um, it's it, it's probably one of the Coen Brothers films that's easier to overlook. And uh, just in case you know, uh, you're listening and you don't know or have a context of this film. Um, it is kind of a slow-mo existential train wreck of this uh, character's life. His name is Larry Gopnik, and he gets a clean bill of health. This is how the, the movie starts mm-hmm. out with. And then everything just kind of falls apart from there, and um, every relationship in his life falls apart, which is, again, this sort of dread that we all have. Like, are we tending to this person? Is this happening? Is this, or is, is the machine still moving along in the ways that it's supposed to? And for Larry Gopnik, it doesn't. It begins mm-hmm. to fall apart. And he even begins to receive angry calls from a Columbia Record Club <laughs> debt collector, which I think is really brilliant because if you've ever been plagued by anxiety, then you know that these minor infringements from your past are things that bubble to the surface every once in a while that you worry about. So this you know, past record club collection calling him and nagging him is a nice stand-in for that. Yeah, I mean, like we've discussed the, the power of closing loops in your life and how an unclosed loop is instantly at least a pinpoint of anxiety uh, in your uh, in your mind. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a great example because the Columbia Records is not going to come and break your thumbs, you know? But, Maybe. Well, it depends It depends which Columbia Records. <laughs> if they're actually based out of Columbia, I don't know. But, um, but, but yeah, it, it's, it's totally a paper tiger. It's totally a closed loop, uh, I, I mean, an unclosed loop mm-hmm. in anxiety working on this character. I'm glad you brought up the loop thing, because that's something that we'll, we can talk about later in terms of trying to, um, you know, keep this anxiety disorder in check. Mm-hmm. But I think we should talk about how America is a very anxious country, it turns out, and that Americans really suffer from anxiety disorders more than any other culture in the world. Yeah, because you think about what what sort of has become the I don't know about the, the predominant, but a, but a very common American story, uh, and and I, I imagine you have this as, as well as I. Well, what happened in your life? At one point, you moved away from your parents' house. Mm-hmm. Where'd you move? You moved to the big city, where you're surrounded by people, but you're less close to any of the people around you. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 know you you have maybe your your, your spouse and or your child with you, uh, but then you, you increasingly you have all this social media creeping into your life. And this becomes the means by which you connect to other people, and uh, and and then meanwhile, this uh, the families that you moved away from, they may be across the country, they may be on, you know, in some cases, they may be on the other side of the globe, mm-hmm. and so we're more and more distant from people, and uh, and and we're we're more cut off. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I just wanted to point out that according to the World Health Organization, that the United States uh, has something like a nearly a third of the Americans. Uh, suffering from anxiety problems in their lifetime. So yeah. a third of Americans will suffer in their lifetime. And the National Institute of National Health says that in any given year, 19% of the population suffers from anxiety. Between 1997 and 2004, Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and Valium. So that industry went from $900 million to $2.1 billion. So what we're seeing here is this idea that our anxiety has not just always been an American thing, but it tends to, uh, or we we tend to see an increase in it over the last couple of decades. So, 
as you had mentioned, you know, there are a couple of factors to that. One is just sort of chasing that job mm-hmm. around um, various different parts of the country and resettling and losing some of the connections to your family and friends. Mm-hmm. And some of that is um, that you have an increased amount of data and information, but it's more in the way that it's presented. And I was thinking about this because uh, I've been rowing at the gym a lot lately. And yeah. this I find to be a very zen activity. It's great. But then I'll look up at the TV and at the ticker at the bottom of the, the news program uh, will have some sort of horrible thing about some child, some something just unimaginable happening to this child, just running over and over again. Yeah. And so... Again, it, you know, the, the way that this information is presented and consumed by us sort of adds to that feeling. Cause here I am feeling like, oh, I'm imagining myself on a, on a lake rowing and now, now I'm thinking about a dead child. Yeah. I, I've never understood the need to have that kind of ticker uh, going on in places like a gym where shouldn't the focus be on, on, you know, getting out of my head and getting into my body. Like, why am I watching this horrible news? Or I've seen the same TV uh, sets blaring over uh, jacuzzis uh, and or within earshot of a sauna. Like, this is, <laughs> why, why, why there? Oh, and then, of course, the big one is airports, you know? Like, I'm very much of the mindset that we need to have, um, we, if, if the TVs are on, okay, have the TVs on to distract people, but have it tuned in to kittens and puppies playing. <laughs> have the, for the, the, the audio, just have it be Brian Eno's music for airports. Nice. We don't need to watch ticker tape about, um, you know, child murders, train wrecks, plane crashes, and what have you. It just seems like, like, like why continue to sprinkle, uh, that kind of horrible topic? Well, it is inescapable, and um, as Taylor Clark in, in the article, it's not the job market from Slate Magazine says, um, a lot of this is reported in a fear-based fashion. So it's not balanced in the sense that, um, you know, the, the good-natured stories tend to hit the news. It's usually the ones that are bleeding and awful that, exactly. that get yeah. our attention. And part of that is the virtue of the 24-hour news cycle. you got to... Yeah. You got to find something. You got to put it up there, and then you got to milk it for everything it's worth. Now, Taylor does say that um, compounding this is an intolerance for negative feelings. So uh, Taylor says we reject situations that could make us feel discomfort. We try to bury or reverse our feelings through shopping, alcohol, or drug use, or entertainment. And psychologist Stephen Hayes, who uses an acceptance and commitment therapy rather than um, drug therapy or maybe he uses it in conjunction, said Americans are victims of feel-goodism, the false idea that bad feelings ought to be annihilated, controlled, or erased by a pill. So some of this is that idea of this pursuit of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're all entitled to be happy, and if we're not happy at this very moment, something is wrong. Yeah. And not feeling settled with that discomfort that everybody feels. Yeah, well, it comes comes back to, you know, the idea of balance in one's life, you know, that... uh, and. To, to get you know to, to dip my toes in a little uh, Buddhism here for a second, you know it's the, the idea that it's from the from the human realm. It's from this this realm of peace that one is able to ascend above that cycle of suffering. It's not from an extreme of pain and, and worry. It's not from an extreme of happiness and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like those are both kind of uh, well, not really dead ends, but those are not the extremes from which liberation lies. You have it, it's it's through this middle ground and an understanding that those are extremes. That when I'm happy. And when I'm when I'm having just an awesome time, that cannot be the uh, the norm. You know, that's right. That's, that's yeah. not sustainable. Right. And if you try to sustain it, it's like stretching a rubber band. You're going to crash down to the other end of the hallway. 
Now, there there are some other factors. Um, according to Rutgers University researcher Judith Seabear, poor mothers are more likely to be classified as having the mental illness of anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety disorder because they live in poverty, uh, not because they're suffering from a psychiatric disorder. And so that's where some of this area gets, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit gray because there are some people who are predisposed genetically to have anxiety disorders. Right. Um, and then sometimes it's just the environmental factors that are pressed upon you. And so was, both nature and nurture, to both environment and uh, genetics playing a role here. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting about this is we already talked about how um, in the United States in particular, migrating from one area to another is pretty typical. And so we don't usually have the support systems of our families or our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of us do. Some, some people have lived for, you know, their families have lived for generations in one area. And some people, you know, like in Atlanta, for instance, this is the great transient city, have lived here for only five years. And so they're still putting their roots down. But if you have had a huge economic loss in your life and you are a single mother, uh, then it would make sense that you begin to have these sort of anxieties creeping in at all times. Because one of the basic bedrocks of your existence, um, your access to health care or food, is jeopardized. I was thinking about this a lot uh, when I was, uh, me and my wife were uh, recently in China mm-hmm. uh, to adopt our son, because uh, you know over there we had had really good guide uh, in in, uh, in the city of Nanning, and uh, her name was Jane, and she was taking us on. She'd point out things about the culture while we were there, and as she pointed out, you'll see a lot of grandparents with the children during the day, because uh, you know it's very you know family wise, very conservative uh, culture, and uh, and so the the grandparents will live with. Uh, with the, the with the um, with the family, mm-hmm. and then they'll look after the kid during the day while the mom and dad work. And at the so at the same time, I'm you know we're thinking, oh well, here we are alone, you know, in this cult, in this uh, country, and we're about to to uh, to get our son, and then the, our grandparent units are on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we've positioned the center of the earth between us and them, and even when we you know return home. Those those uh, grandparents are still in uh, in cities that are you know four or seven hours away. Well, see, and that's really interesting because that's a discrepancy. That's that's a reason why in some third world countries you don't see these anxiety disorders being as prevalent as in the United States, um, even though the conditions, you know, and the access to food and healthcare could could be far worse than in the United States because they have a support system in place. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss Tylenol and anxiety. All right, we're back, and we're about to to lay on uh, some information on you guys about Tylenol, about emotional pain, and David Lynch. Yes, this is... um in case you were wondering, is there a study out there that involves, uh, let's see, uh, dental procedures, prostitutes, um, the fear of death, and uh, David Lynch's rabbits? Why, we yes, have, there is. Yes, we have that study for you. <laughs> uh, first, though, I wanted to mention that we have talked about emotional pain and physical pain being processed basically by the same circuitry. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, that was fascinating to me because it turns out that um, th- they're so closely related that if someone, say, hurts your feelings or there, there's some other emotional uh, pain that you have, 
it, it literally does hurt you in that yeah. way. I mean, you're not, presumably you're not sitting there feeling as though daggers are in your skin, but there's... But that's the sort of Looney Tunes vision of it. It's like they stab me in the back with that statement. You that's, know, it's like, yes, you pierced my heart when you said that. Your brain is taking that as a threat. Mm-hmm. And um, this was particularly poignant when we were talking about the teenage brain mm-hmm. and why when when you're a teenager and uh, you're, if you're... Um, if you feel like you're shunned, it feels like the end of the world. And it's not because a teen is being dramatic. It just turns out that that part of their brain is more amped up and they're getting many more signals from their brain that they are, they're threatened. Yeah, because it's, it's very much about attach yourself to a group, find your place, because that's survival. Even though that model doesn't necessarily make as much sense uh, in, a, in a modern sense and a very in an organism level sense. It works. It does, right? And researchers are really looking at this whole physical pain and social pain and looking at some of the same chemicals and neural processes that they share. And uh, so these conditions really are kind of two sides of the same coin here. And so they have struck on this idea of Tylenol, not so much like, hey, let's use Tylenol to to really dial down any sort of anxiety, dread, or emotional pain, but more in the sense of let's look at Tylenol and see how it's working in conjunction with emotional yeah, pain. Yeah, it's, it's more about let by giving Tylenol to the subjects in this uh, experiment, we're able to highlight the, uh, the connectedness between physical and emotional pain. So this, uh, do we want to talk about this study? We do. Okay. Yeah. All right, so what do you do if you are... Uh, Daniel uh, Randall's a doctoral student in psychology at the University of British Columbia. Well, what you do is you get 120 college students, Mm -hmm. and you randomly assign them to take either 1,000 milligrams of a Tylenol brand uh, acetaminophen or a placebo, you know, a sugar pill, uh, and that's the control group. And then one group of participants uh, you instruct to write two paragraphs about what would happen to their body if they die and how they would (laughs) feel about it. And then the others you ask them to write about dental pain. Uh, which, according to the paper, would not be unpleasant, but likely wouldn't invoke any existential anxieties, mm-hmm. which I take some issue with, we'll discuss. But um, <laughs> And then all the students then had to read a hypothetical arrest report about a prostitute and set the bail on a scale of zero to $900. And then finally, there's, there's, uh, there's some, a viewing of uh, David Lynch's rabbits. Yeah, tell us more. Have you seen rabbits? I haven't seen it, yeah. but the uh, still that I saw from it seems just in line with every other David Lynch film that yeah. I've seen, in which there is a human with an animal head on in a domestic setting. And um, from from what they describe in this study, the domestic setting um, is, is made even eerier by the fact um, that not only is there a rabbit-headed human standing there, but there's a soundtrack that is very foreboding, and there are sort of these non-sequiturs that are said by these rabbit humans that have no context, and then a laugh track that accompanies them. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was so brilliant about this is that Lynch is so good at sort of bringing up these very vague notions of unease mm-hmm. and actual just, like, wrongness. Yeah. <laughs> that he's the perfect choice for trying to exacerbate this condition, this yeah, anxiety. Yeah, you don't want to show a video of somebody, like, just hitting themselves in the knee with a sledgehammer. But I'm no. sure that art film exists somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the, 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 yeah, this, this walks the line in, in a very uh, possibly effective manner. So from my understanding, they were made to watch this clip and mm-hmm. then sort of um, 
weigh, again, their reasoning in terms of death or even um, what sort of punitive damages these prostitutes would pay, right? Right. So what's interesting here is looking at the way that Tylenol is affecting their their emotional response, their their, their anxiety level regarding mm-hmm. uh, physical pain in terms of this dental uh, uh, procedure uh, that they're supposed to write about, in terms of the, the notion of uh, inevitable physical death, and uh, also their possible empathy for this uh, this prostitute, this uh, hypothetical prostitute that's been arrested. So, of course, the people that took the Tylenol, well, they didn't seem to be as bothered by this idea of death. And yeah. they weren't as, um, I guess you could say, um, m- maybe their, their value system for mm-hmm. the prostitutes were a, a bit kinder and they didn't feel like they needed to pay as much as their counterparts who took the sugar pill. Mm-hmm. And their dental pain, they didn't feel was, you know, quite as awful as they had imagined. Huh. So, I mean, that's telling you that this this Tylenol is sort of what they think is that it is taking this emotional pain processing and recasting it for people, and perhaps they're not feeling it as as uh, as much as they would have yeah. if they hadn't taken it. Now, again, we have to underline once more: don't go taking a lot of Tylenol expecting to. to to treat your own anxiety levels. I, yeah, I wanted to also point out that, um, it, as the researchers pointed out, this is not something that they said, oh, take Tylenol if you have anxiety. Yeah. Um, this was just, again, them trying to figure out how Tylenol works on the brain with emotion, and uh, a large amount of Tylenol can actually lead to liver problems. So yeah. there's a so whole host wanna, of other things. You don't want to go down that road. Now, I do disagree with them about the whole... Um, the whole idea that, oh, and thinking about dental pain is not going to cause you any kind of existential dread. Because I tend to find uh, quite the opposite. That if I think about dental pain, if I think about dental procedures, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm inevitably thinking about people getting older and people aging and the, uh, the long, uh, certain road to death. Uh, I, I always come back to Tina Fey's quote that uh, the mouth dies first. You know, that as you get older, you suddenly find yourself realizing, hey, I I actually have to, to work a little harder to maintain everything in this cavity that is so damningly close to my brain and my, my center of being. Uh, and, and and then you end up having to, to get these procedures, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and I find that it is a, a center of existential dread. That I can yeah. dial down if I think about it enough and realize, all right, well, there's plenty of stuff I can do, and you know, it's just a matter of a follow, establishing a plan and following it, and trusting in your healthcare procedures that they're possibly more interested in maintaining your dental health and selling you a bunch of junk. Well, I think that most people, when they think about going to the dentist, they know that there's some mild discomfort, right? They might have their, you know, gum lines bleed, so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But for other people, like maybe you and I, who have had procedures, it really is. There's a lot of angst um, yeah. because for me, going to the dentist is finding out that you have a problem, but then they go in and then they find even more problems. So it's like you know, unpeeling the onion and, and the existential dread of. You know, are we ever going to get to the bottom of this awfulness? Now you're erecting a, a tiny village in my mouth with yeah. all sorts of materials. Yeah, and the feeling like if I do everything you say, I'm still going to wind up having to get something done. You know, it's so, yeah. so yeah, I'm, maybe other people are different. You'll have to write in and let us know about that. But um, but I find it kind of a, an area of existential dread, possibly confounded for me personally, since my uh, deceased father was a dentist, so I probably have some additional baggage uh, loaded on that train as well. Mm, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I wanted to point out that a second experiment of 207 participants in this same sort of structure where you have the Tylenol and you mm-hmm. have the sugar pill and you have David Lynch and this time you have the Simpsons um, as the control <laughs> um, was shown to those 207 participants. And after watching the clip, the students looked at footage from the 2011 Vancouver hockey riot sparked by the Canucks loss in their bid for the Stanley Cup. And they were asked how harshly the rioters should be punished for vandalism. <laughs> and again, uh, those who took Tylenol before they watched Rabbits, the David Lynch film, seemed to feel more lenient, as did all the students who watched The Simpsons. Huh. So, uh, you know, it's good that they check that out again. Again, this is, you know, this idea of Tylenol and, and emotional well-being, these are early studies. There are yeah. not a lot of them, so it'll be interesting to but see. It, but it does cast some interesting light on the the connectedness of, uh, of physical pain and anxiety. It casts some interesting light on how anxious people behave mm-hmm. towards other people. You know, their their how it affects their empathy uh, and, and their severity in judging others. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I, I read about trickle down anxiety. And uh, there's a small study of parent-child pairs that was conducted by Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the relationship between anxiety-ridden parents and their children. And they found that parents with particularly, in particular, social anxiety disorder are more likely than parents with other types of anxiety to engage in behaviors that put their children at risk for developing angst of their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're talking about 66 anxious parents. And there's 66 children ages 7 to 12. And they had to do this activity together. And what they found is it's a, using a scale of 1 to 5 that those, again, those kids that had the parents with social anxieties were criticized a lot more during this act. Um, the, the parents expressed a lot more doubt. And then the kids sort of took that on again. So they were, again, trying to get to the bottom of, you know, how much of this is nature and nurture and, you know, how much of this do we actually pass on to our children? The other thing about anxiety, besides just being, you know, very uncomfortable and, and for some people debilitating, is that for some people, particularly women, uh, older women, it may shorten your telomeres. Now, telomeres are those DNA proteins at the end of the chromosomes. And it's really important because telomeres, the longer you have them, the presumably the lengthier your life will be. Yes. Um, or at least, you know, the, the less disease you may end up having. Yes. Uh, which would be great because uh, presumably you would live longer if you had less disease. So a study by researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital showed that a common form of anxiety known as phobic anxiety was associated with shorter telomeres in middle age and older women. And um, that suggested that phobic anxiety is a possible risk factor for accelerating age. So we're talking about blood samples from 5,000 women, more than 5,000 women, ages 42 to 69. And they used those samples and they analyzed the telomere length as well as the participants' concurrent self-reports regarding their phobic symptoms. And, you know, this is a story, again, that... These environmental factors in our internal states are going to affect the way that our body responds and, and how healthy it can be. Uh, so again, this is a this is a small study, and this is just this one group of women from those ages. But I think it's very telling on the sort of damage that sustained anxiety disorders uh, can do to our bodies and minds. Yeah, fear is the mind killer. 
All right, so uh, we should probably, everyone's thinking about anxiety now. We've been talking about it all, all through this podcast. You're probably pinpointing examples of anxiety in your own life. So we should probably try and send everybody home semi-happy and discuss some basic methods to cut down on the anxiety in your life. Uh, so let's start with uh, with just talking about the body itself, fear in the body, anxiety in the body. What can you do to, to bolster your uh, your physical response to anxiety? Well, we already know that when you are feeling anxious or stressed, that your breathing pot patterns change, mm-hmm. and they're essentially telegraphing to your body, hey, there's a problem here. So gaining your breath and becoming aware of that is hugely important. And we've talked mm-hmm. about that in terms of meditation, yoga. Yeah, stopping to breathe. Basic, any, kind of, any kind of basic breathing exercise out there, and there are many, uh, they can have just... I don't know about phenomenal, but they can have very noticeable effects on your immediate uh, level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, some basic stuff here, just sort of mom kind of stuff. Eat right. You know? Mom stuff. You know, eat eat balanced meals. Eat eat some things that are good for you, not just junk food. Avoid alcohol, nicotine, sugar, and caffeine because you know we're talking about um, um, we're talking about things that, uh, that that depress or stimulate the body. Again, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's talking about that hallway. On one end of the hallway, there's uh, there's worry and fear. On the other hand, and there's happiness and, and you know and crazy excitement. And in the middle of the hallway, that's where the peace is. That's where the balance is. And you can't ma- you're not going to maintain one extreme without without uh, ricocheting back to the other. So when you're taking these, uh, you know, I'm not saying don't you know drink alcohol or don't have a cup of coffee, but know that you're skyrocketing yourself in one direction or the other, and it's it, you potentially turning into this pinball ball of anxiety zipping up and down the hallway. Um, exercise is great mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons, including, as we mentioned earlier, getting out of your head and into your body. You know, there's if you're you're straining yourself into a pose in yoga, or if you're you're punishing yourself on the rowing machine at the gym, then if, as long as CNN isn't on in the background, there's a good <laughs> chance that you're going to be able to get out of your mind and get into your body. Um, taking care of yourself, getting a good night's sleep. This was something that I. Uh, we really uh, woke up to on the uh, adoption trip yeah. when uh, when we came back, especially, and everybody was jet lagged, including the toddler, of course, is that if you don't have enough sleep, everything gets crazier. And it's something I already knew uh, from our podcasts and and, uh, and and our research, but really drove home for me that if you, you don't have enough sleep, then the anxiety is really going to crank up. And then also finally consider that hormonal changes may be occurring as well. Yeah, that's true. And uh, think like a British person. Oh, yeah? Yeah. If you're, if bury you're, it all If you're an down. American listening okay. to this, uh, not someone bury it all down, but um, this idea, and you already kind of touched on this, is that happiness and you know, extremes are not sustainable. And so if you look at, at a culture, if you look at the UK culture in terms of the pursuit of happiness, it's not quite as rabid as it is in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like the expectations are a little bit more pragmatic yeah. in terms of what we should expect for ourselves. Yeah, don't buy into the product that most commercials are selling you, saying you can be happy all the time with this product. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, there you go. We've discussed discussed anxiety, general anxiety, dread in your life and the lives of those around you. Uh, hopefully, we've uh, we forced you to, at the very least, sort of turn uh, the camera back around and look at anxiety written and sort of uh, get some perspective on it uh, in your own life and, and realize a little bit what's going on there. And, you know, maybe we even covered a few of the tools you may begin to use to correct it. But, if you again, if you are experiencing this kind of general anxiety that we've discussed, if, if anxiety is 
really playing a debilitating role in your life, even just a little bit, do consider getting uh, some sort of professional help. Help go to a doctor, tell them what's going on. You know, don't uh, don't feel like you're alone in this, and this is just a personal battle between you and uh, your dean. Indeed. All right, so, hey, you want to get in touch with us. You want to, to talk about anxiety, about fear, about dread, about all of these things. Uh, you can find us in all the usual places. Uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that's the mothership. That's where all our blogs, videos, podcasts, etc. may be found. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Stuff to blow your mind on all of those. And uh, you can also find us on Mind Stuff Show for our YouTube clips. And, Julie, where can they find us for a good old-fashioned email correspondence? Uh, you can send that to BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 